coming for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time in the uh, cleansing of the temple. Um, we have both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or all three of the synoptic gospels to work with. Uh, the Gospel of John does not record this episode. It, uh, the cleansing of the temple recorded in the Gospel of John is actually an earlier cleansing. He did it twice, once early in his ministry and once uh, three days before the crucifixion. And that's where we are today. Let's go ahead and use Mark as our base text. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 18. And then as necessary, we can bring in Matthew 21 and Luke 19. We actually, this is our third session in this episode, and we've covered the bulk of it, but there are some final details that we have to recognize, including the angelic um, pattern that preceded this. And uh, we'll spend some time in Ezekiel 28, we'll spend some time in Isaiah 56, and um, then we'll tie it together. I think we've got maybe, um, well, we'll just see how the hour goes. might be a short hour, but... I don't want to try to get started on uh, episode 3 out of John 12 today. So if we uh, wrap it up, then we'll be at a good stopping point for the next couple of, uh, of weeks. Remember, no Life of Christ class on the 1st, the 8th, or the 15th. We've got about half of December off for Life of Christ. We'll come back on uh, the 22nd, I guess, which is Christmas week. Yeah, we'll have a class on the 22nd and the 29th both of those uh, weeks. Okay. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have one more time to assemble together. We thank you for your faithfulness. We ask, Father, for distractions to be set aside and just for your hand of blessing upon our, upon our study today. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings, Father. This is our Thanksgiving week, and there's um, so much to be thankful for, Father. We, we acknowledge you and your glory for all that you've provided, and we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Remember, we are combining two episodes in the Harmony of the Gospel outline that we're using. Uh, E.T. Robertson is the basic structure of what we're using for our Harmony of the Gospel. There's several others, but um, we're using the basic uh, order of uh, of E.T. Robertson's Harmony. And uh, we've adjusted a few things, particularly re- uh, related to the dating and, and so forth. I think Robertson was a 30 or 32 A.D. kind of guy. I'm a 33 A.D. crucifixion uh, guy myself. Um, Anyway, episode two is the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And episode four is the uh, testimony, the withered fig tree testifies. And this follows the order in Mark chapter 11. If you look at it with me one more time, you'll notice um, in verses 12 through 18, on the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry, seeing at a distance a fig tree. Um, in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then in verses 15 and following, down through verse 18, we've got the, uh, the transition into the city and the cleansing of the temple and the things we're looking at today. Then um, in verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. And this was the routine 
through the Passion Week. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, except for Thursday night. Thursday night, he does not return out to Bethany. Instead, Thursday night, they have the upper room dinner, and then he goes out to the garden, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's arrested at midnight, uh, Thursday night, first thing Friday morning. Then in Mark 11:20, we read, as they were passing by in the morning, this would make it Wednesday morning then, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. So um, in the A.T. Robertson uh, harmony, then he splits these up into events two and three, uh, two and four within the episode out of John chapter 12, the attraction of sacrifice. Uh, he numbers that as as episode number three. So I thought it'd be simpler if we go ahead and just combine them and uh, teach them as, as one unit. Uh, starting in verse 12, going all the way down through verse 25, and uh, and handling it that way. So that's, anyway, that explains why we have a 2 and a 4 on the screen, and why when we come back uh, to this series, we will return to John 12 and handle episode number 3 there, the attraction of sacrifice. All right, if you were with us in the last couple of weeks then, in the points of study, this is Tuesday morning, Nissan 11. If uh, you don't like the Nissan dating system, then uh, just call it March 31st, okay? Can you handle March 31st? All right. Um, Tuesday morning, Nissan 11, Jesus cursed a fig tree, and we gave you some subpoints of study there, particularly as it relates to the aspects of prayer and what he was teaching with respect to the necessity for faith. We then move into the cleansing of the temple under point two. There were some subpoints and other things. I'm going to skip rapidly over all of that. Point two then, as he had done three years previously, Jesus physically and aggressively halted the robber's den activity. He cleanses the temple. And in, uh, the total ministry of our Savior was about three and a half years. Um, the uh, episode in John chapter 2 where he cleanses the temple the first time was also a Passover season, Passover holiday. And so we have pretty well a, a good pinpointing of, of a three-year span between John 2 and Mark chapter 11. But Jesus is physically and aggressively halting the godless, wicked, um, horrible activity in his father's house. So uh, this is what we're looking at. And we got a pretty good jump on it last week. I just want to tie it together here today. Uh, hold your finger in Mark 11. Let's just remind ourselves of the specific language in John 2. And uh, it is more vivid in terms of the um, description of, of how he flipped tables over and let loose the animals and, and things like that. But in John 2, 13 through 17, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Um, an emporium. Where we, and the Greek word there is where we get our English word emporium, a, a marketplace, a place for profiteering, you understand. And his disciples remembered that his, it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. All right, so that's the language there. Nothing three years ago when he was early in his ministry, nothing there, uh, the language of a robber's den does not occur, but the language of house of merchandise 
does. My father's house, a place of business. And that was what struck him. That was the facet that consumed him was the place of business. Um, Nothing about robber's den and nothing about house of prayer. That's going to be the uh, at the forefront of his message in Mark 11. So let's say rescue your finger and go back now to Mark 11. Um, And it is kind of interesting what struck him early on and what strikes him now. Obviously, prayer is his place of focus now. And uh, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And they've turned it into a uh, into a uh, a lair. Okay, lair instead of prayer. How about that? Um, Yes, it's still a marketplace. Yes, it's still a place for profiteering. But it, it's actually worsened. Uh, I think the language here is more severe. I think the expression here is more noteworthy. Uh, in that they've not only, I think maybe three years ago they viewed it as a place where they could profit, but they didn't view it as their own hideout. They didn't view it as their own custody. Uh, but now they've got ownership of the place. It's like they're, uh, like in the days of Nehemiah when that Samaritan actually had a condo apartment in the, uh, in the temple itself. You think, well, how does that happen? Okay, who would who would uh, who would do something like that? Well, uh, that Samaritan did in, in Nehemiah's day, uh, and now here it's happening again, uh, where they're viewing this as their headquarters, their corporate headquarters. It's their den. It's their lair. So, again, reading specifically now the language. Uh, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple, began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. So there's still economic activity taking place and they're profiting uh, handsomely uh, from the endeavor. Overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now that's an expansion. That's uh, more detail than we had in John chapter 2. And uh, you start to wonder what additional... Um, <laughs> what additional endeavors were going on beyond simply the uh, the racket that they had going on before. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. So he actually quotes Isaiah 56, and he uses the opportunity to teach doctrine pertaining to the international house of prayer. And that's what we're going to see here today. So some point one then, what was supposed to be an international house of prayer, this was the original IHOP, in case you wanted to know. All right. The international house of prayer. Pancakes hadn't even been invented yet, so they, Isaiah 56, 7. And this is fascinating because we've always understand that the temple as being the Jewish temple. It's in Jerusalem and it's a place... For the Jews, and, and not even all the Jews, only the Levites and the priests and so forth. Well, for the, <coughs> excuse me, for the Holy of Holies, that's certainly true, only the high priest. And for the holy place, that's certainly true, only the priesthood. And for the inner courts, that's true, only the Levites. But there were outer courts for the Gentiles. And there were outer courts, for example, for the women. And there were places to be gathered for the fellowship meals and places to be gathered for the, uh, the, the free will offerings. See, and the, the, the entire complex was much larger than just simply the inner holy of holies and, and holy place and so forth. And part of what was supposed to take place in these outer courtyards was prayer. Uh, it, was a, it was supposed to be a central feature of their assembly. It was supposed to be a place where Gentiles could come and receive instruction. 
And in fact, very quickly, we're going to see this is what's taking place. And Andrew is going to bring a, a crowd of Greeks by to introduce them to, to Jesus. And uh, this is supposed to be what takes place. So uh, let's turn back to Isaiah 56 and take a look at it and see the larger picture of this, which is truly second advent in its fulfillment. Isaiah 56. And it's amazing. Here's the Lord focused on the cross and focused on second advent and focused on the millennial kingdom. And it seems like the priests and the Levites and the religious leaders of his day that are running the program up there at the temple, uh, they're not on board with anything that has anything to do with Scripture or reality. Uh, they're, they're involved in the marketing. They're involved in the tourist aspect and the kind of money they can make. And, uh, and big money, see, in, uh, you know, the temple only accepting the, the shekel, the, the proper currency. And so if you're showing up from Rome or Greece or Africa or wherever, and you've got your foreign coins, well, you know, um, glad you brought that foreign currency with you, but it'll have to be exchanged for the proper, uh, you know, shekel of the, of the temple, okay? The, uh, the sanctified temple and of course every time they're making money on the on the currency exchange you know they're getting their cut every single time and then likewise with the animals you know you didn't bring a goat with you all the way from rome did you well you can actually purchase one here a pre-approved um you know uh, pharisee certified as being without spot or blemish okay and uh and of course you're going to pay extra for that also to have the guarantee it's got the the pharisee seal of approval and, and all that and this is big money Big money that they're making here. All right. Isaiah 56. The key verse we're headed for is verse 7. But understand um, there's six verses in front of verse 7. <laughs> and then uh, some more verses after that. This whole chapter here is uh, is interesting. Let's just pick up on... Uh, well... Verse 1, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. And this is uh, an amazing promise given, of course, the time frame in which it's given. Isaiah is ministering um, as the northern kingdom is swept away, as King Hezekiah and the southern kingdom are afraid they're going to get swept away. And as God is promising them, no, um, Assyria took away the northern kingdom. If you repent and humble yourself, you'll be preserved. Of course, if you don't, then Babylon will take you off. But even in, in that context, though, Isaiah is promising them about a virgin and a baby and a king and a coming comfort and, and all of these things. So preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. My righteousness is to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil. And so they've got this opportunity to walk in righteousness, to please the Lord, to wait expectantly for his coming Savior and his coming righteousness. And Israel is not alone in this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Gentiles have a right to be attached to Israel as they wait for the coming Savior. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree, for thus says the Lord. Uh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house within my walls a memorial and a name better 
than that of sons and daughters. Okay? The eunuchs aren't going to have normal family life, right? Because that's been removed. That's been, um, they're, they're, they got something better. Okay? By being attached to the Lord and, and, uh, and so forth. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Fascinating play on words. We will uh, let that go for this morning. Verse 6, though, and the foreigner who joined, foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning my, uh, the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, this is what they're going to have to look forward to in the millennial kingdom. This was not fulfilled in first advent. This will be fulfilled in second advent. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples, all the Gentile nations. Um, what was supposed to be an international house of prayer had become a reflection of Satan's downfall. And that's, I believe, what irked, what prompted the zeal and the reaction uh, in the Lord's thinking. I'm going to get to Ezekiel 28 in a moment, but let me just, while this is fresh in our minds, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Okay? All the peoples. And who are those? Well, not just, you know, there's a, there's a twofold division, Jew and Gentile, right? Or Jew and Greek. Um, basically, a Gentile is any non-Jew. But who are those Gentiles? How are they broken down? What are the divisions of humanity? You understand. Okay, and in Genesis chapter 10, humanity was broken down into three broad divisions and a total of 70 families within those three broad divisions, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, okay, and the 70 divisions of humanity. And you say, well, what does that have any bearing to do with anything? Well, Acts chapter uh, 17, and I'll show you. It has a lot to do with everything. And in Paul's uh, sermon in Athens... We've got uh, some remarkable doctrine that relates to Genesis 10, relates to Genesis 6, 7, and 8, the flood, relates to uh, the covenant with Noah, relates to a lot of things, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. And so uh, he's giving a sermon here on Mars Hill, and he says, um, you know, he's, he's passing by this altar to the unknown God there. He says in verse 23, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people or gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one man, I think it was one blood in the old King James translation, right? He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. See, this, there's no excuse. Biblical Christianity cannot be used to validate any kind of racism that uh, is manifested in, in modern culture. Every race, every tribe, tongue, language, people, all come from man. We're all Adamic. And, and then, of course, with the flood, we're all Noahic. He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. But now notice, having determined their appointed times... And the boundaries of their habitation. Boundaries of their habitation. Boundaries. Borders. 
Okay? People that tell you that borders aren't important or, or borders are primitive or we're, we're beyond the time of borders. See, they're attacking the laws of divine establishment. They're attacking God's design, which includes borders, language, culture. Okay? And uh, it's not just Israel that has a land grant. Israel has borders from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, from the Great Sea in the west and the Arabah there, the desert there to the east. Israel has borders, but they're not the only nation with borders. Guess how many other nations have borders? All of them. <laughs> All right. They've got geographic boundaries. They also have chronological boundaries. Notice. He has appointed their times, having determined their appointed times, plural. So what would those times be? The time of their rising and the time of their falling. When is a nation established? When is a nation removed from human history? What nations are no longer on the face of the earth today? It used to be, okay? There used to be a Republic of Texas, not there anymore. Okay? Other nations aren't around anymore. Nations come, nations go. Only one nation has an eternal destiny. Prophesied in their scriptures. So, the idea that this international house of prayer is going to be a feature in the millennial kingdom and, and kings are going to have to come at the Feast of Tabernacles. They're going to have to worship Jesus Christ. We saw that in Zechariah 14. Or they get their rain turned off for the following year. Okay? Like when a landlord shuts your water off or you're the city of Austin comes in and they, they shut off your water valve because you didn't pay your, you know, they, they turn off your meter because you didn't pay your water bill. Well, imagine an entire nation having their rain cut off because their king did not come to Jerusalem or their president or prime minister or whatever. Their national executive leader did not come to Jerusalem to worship Jesus Christ at the Feast of Tabernacles. So, again, still looking at Isaiah 56 here. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. They have boundaries, they have land grants, they have destinies. They will uh, be featured in the millennial kingdom, but they will not have a temple. When it comes to worship Yahweh Elohim, he will be the God of Israel and they will go to Jerusalem. And their, their national prayers can be brought to the uh, international house of prayer right here. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. And it goes on, beasts of the field and different things there. It is interesting though, in the midst of this promise comes Isaiah's message that they're uh, actually going to have to come under some discipline here first of all and uh, the way this ends is kind of funny the um, all you beasts of the field all you beasts in the forest come and eat his watchmen are blind all of them know nothing <laughs> you know just putting all the wolves on notice hey guess what um, there's some sheep over here and the watchmen are blind and uh, and they're, they're kind of ignorant and they're mute dogs unable to bark so uh, don't don't worry about the sheep dogs and uh dreamers lying down who love to slumber so they're drunk they're sleeping you have a good snack tonight all the dogs are greedy they're not satisfied they're shepherds who have no understanding they've all turned to their own way each to his unjust gain 
to the last one. Now, what do you see in this? Let me read the verse 11 again. And remember, our lesson today is about the money changers in the temple. All the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his unjust gain, to the last one. Hmm. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us drink heavy of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. <laughs> Woohoo. All right. And you see what they've turned the temple into. They've turned the temple into. And you know, they get there's pilgrims that come. They come every day of the year. They come, and of course, Passover is one of the three high seasons where they're really packed to the gills. But you get pilgrims year round. You get people coming in. And every time they come in, what are they bringing? They're bringing money. They're bringing offerings. They're bringing wine for the libations. They're bringing uh, feasts. Okay, and for some of these devout worshipers, of course, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And here they've come for once, you know, the one time they're going to feast. They get to feast with the Levites. And they've been dreaming of this for years. Well, the Levites, they're stuffing themselves every single day. They don't care who's coming into town. Okay, great. You know, where you're from. All right. You like Jerusalem? Great. You know, um, and they're just feasting and drinking and um, making money on all their exchange, currency exchange and all kinds of stuff. Tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Well, pathetic what they turned it into. It had become a reflection of Satan's downfall. Before we get there, I'll just give you point B then. The remainder of Isaiah's prophecy comes into context and focus. And particularly those greedy dogs, the uh, ignorant shepherds turning to their own way, turning to his unjust gain. Each one to his unjust gain to the very last one. You wonder why the Lord was so berserk? Why he flipped over tables and started driving folks out? He's seeing, uh, he's seeing Isaiah 56 come alive. He's also seeing Ezekiel 28 come alive. So let's turn over there. This is a reflection of Satan's downfall. Ezekiel 28. I believe Satan motivates this. He energizes it. He provides for it. He uh, promotes it. Provokes it. He's uh, delighted to see it when it happens. He's flattered by the imitation. And he is also justified in his own insane mind. <laughs> because every time it plays out again, he's able to point his satanic finger and say, see, <laughs> hmm. Ezekiel 28. You know, was it the will of God for the Levites to get rich? Was it the will of God? Was, was there, were they set apart? We just studied Malachi. And we saw the, the, the calling of Levi. And we saw the, the priesthood there. But... Did, did he set them apart to say, here, I, I want you to just get filthy rich. I'm going to pour treasure on you. They were set apart to serve. They were set apart to worship. They were set apart to, to teach the law to the other tribes. And they didn't need money. They didn't need a land grant. They didn't need uh, to, to pass on a plot of land. They didn't need to farm. They didn't need 
everything should have been provided for them if the other tribes had been properly oriented. And they would have eaten well. All their needs would have been met. And, um, and instead, they took their position and, and used it and, uh, and, and became wealthy. It's the same thing Satan did. Why did he need money? But he did. All right, Ezekiel 28. Then we've gone through this a number of times, um, but it's worth, every time we can look at it again, it's worthwhile because uh, it, it's fallen into criticism in recent decades. There's a tendency, I think, among even evangelicals to um, to rip angels out of the text every chance they get, um, and so they deny Isaiah 14. They deny Ezekiel. 28 they deny genesis 6 they 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 basically take so many angelic passages and and strip them of anything spiritual verses 1 through 10 is a message to a human being called the leader of tyre in verse 2 and then we have and he was involved in trade and he was involved in wealth and he was he was very prideful we find that he is simply the earthly representative of the uh, the power behind the throne, and that's in verse 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now it's a second message. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. It's a different word. So you've got a ruler, a leader in verse 2, and now you've got a king in verse 12. And so if you rightly divide the word of truth and if you have a proper hermeneutic, then you recognize this is two messages to two different individuals. One is called a, a leader, one is called a king. And it's not a repeat of the first message. There are similarities, of course. I believe one is the human leader and, and the other is, is Satan himself. So thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. This is why I believe it cannot be a human being, because Adam and Eve were the only human beings that were ever in Eden, uh, at least in the, the Eden we know about from Genesis chapter 1. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of the settings and sockets. That's not a human being. <laughs> That's not a fish, that's not a bird, that's not a cow, that's not a zoological animal. I defy any zoologist to find a creature with onyx and jasper and gold and so forth. This is the glory of the dragon before his fall. You were the anointed cherub who covers. Well, there we go. He's not a human being, he's a cherub. Now we can accept with a literal hermeneutic what this passage is talking about. We understand the breakdown of the angels and some are seraphim and some are cherubim. This one's a cherub. Singular cherub, plural cherubim. Not only is he a cherub, but he's the, we've got, there's lots of cherubim in the Bible. There's only one who's called the Messiah. The Mashiach. The Christ cherub. The anointed cherub. And this is a very unique title right here. You are the Messiah, the Mashiach Cherub, the anointed cherub who covers, who guards. And I placed you there. Adam had a guardianship responsibility in his Eden, and he blew it. But even before that, Satan had a 
guardian responsibility in his Eden. And he blew it. So you were the Christ cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless. And those stones of fire, if you understand in Isaiah chapter 6, the, the, uh, the, the charcoal, the stones that burned Isaiah's lips. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and uh, the angel came and took one of those stones and purified his lips. You are blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Again, this is consistent with an angel. This is consistent with a cherubim. This is not uh, appropriate for a human being. Adam and Eve were the only created human beings. We were born. And we were born unrighteous until we were made righteous at the point of our salvation. Every one of us was born unrighteous. And then in the new creation, we were made righteous. Well, this is the other way around. Here's a being who was created righteous, blameless, sinless and perfect. But then he was made unrighteous when unrighteousness was found within him. So you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Unrighteousness was found in you. The sin started off in mental attitude before it was ever expressed overtly. And the, the full thinking on it comes in Isaiah 14 with the five I wills. He gives voice to his prideful thinking with five I wills. Now, what sparked this? How did this germinate within a sinless being? I mean, at least with Adam and Eve, we understand that there was an external tempter. <laughs> there was a, the, you know, this serpent starts tempting them. And, and so they're still sinless and perfect, but they had these... False whispers coming, these lies being spoken. Not so with, with Satan. There's no external tempter for him. It was internal. And how did that start coming about? Well, the money changing activities here. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Just break that down word by word. And we don't understand all of it. In fact, we barely understand any of it. But the plain language of what this says here is that there was economic activity in the angelic stewardship. There was some trade. There was some medium of exchange. There was some exchange mechanism for goods and services. In the original angelic creation. And the exchange of the free trade of goods and services. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's wild. And we live in this. It's, it's, it, it, sometimes it boggles my mind. And then sometimes I say, well, no wonder. It's obvious. Why does the adversary hate capitalism? Why does he hate the voluntary free trade of goods and services? Why does he hate that? Why does he attack at every chance he gets? Why would he rather have despotism? Why would he rather have communism? Why would he rather have socialism? Why would he rather have anything but a free voluntary exchange of goods and services? Because at some point... When that breaks down, the alternative is force. 
If, if, if someone's not, if you can't have a voluntary exchange, then you have to go with an involuntary application of force. You take what you want. You rob, you steal, you plunder. I mean, it's basically what it comes down to. Either you do it with some kind of weapon or you get your government to do it. (laughs) Okay? And if it's not voluntary any longer, it's theft. So, you know, God designed a moral realm of creation in, in the angels and then again with humans. And then he provided components for wealth, including mineral wealth and gold and, and commodities that could be accumulated and stored and, and traded and, and, and uh, dealt with and so forth so that volition can be exercised on a free basis. And you can choose. Do I want to buy that? Do I not want to buy that? Can I afford it? Can I not afford it? Is it worth it to me? Is it not worth it to me? And it's all about my choice and the, the buyer's choice, the seller's choice. And it's a win-win every time. I'm not going to teach you a whole hour on capitalism, but the buyer wins because he's purchasing something he wants for a price he's willing to pay. And the seller wins because he's selling something he wants to sell for a price he's willing to accept. There's no thievery about any of it. Now, Satan can't stand that. And you'll notice... By the abundance. The abundance appears to be the mechanism here. And when he couldn't get enough through legitimate means, he starts considering the alternative. How can I get more? And violence becomes the alternative. You are internally filled with violence and you sinned. He considered that it was possible. Then he considered that it was desirable. And then he decided to do it. And the moment he chose to do it, he committed the mental attitude sin. Therefore, I have cast you as profane. Profane is the opposite of holy. The mountain, the holy mountain was supposed to be sanctified for the Lord's glory. And he profaned his sanctuaries. So he's cast as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. He no longer has the glorious gemstones. He no longer has the beauty. After his fall, he's he's the scaled dragon of darkness. If he wants to appear as an angel of light, he's got to disguise himself because his his true form now is the Leviathan from Job 41. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So here we see it. He was the most beautiful of all the created beings And he got full of himself. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Again, we have more questions than answers because the plural sanctuaries has us really pondering. The Levitical structure had a single sanctuary, a holy place, a most holy place. And maybe that's all that's in view here is the holy place and most holy place. Um, In any event, he defiled it. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. No longer the glittering gemstones. Now the scales and the spears and the the fierce um, appearance of the Leviathan 
as I said. All who know you among the peoples, that's interesting, are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. All right, so what was supposed to be an international house of prayer had become a reflection of Satan's downfall. And the very same profiteering, the very same um, using religion to get rich. Of course, that didn't happen today, right? Then That wouldn't happen in modern times. No. You get some TV huckster telling you if he doesn't get a million dollars by Friday, God's going to kill him. And he gets a million dollars by Thursday. You know, he gets it with a day to spare. And, the, and he's, he's talking about devouring widows' houses. How many of these TV hucksters, these televangelists, I don't want to call them televangelists because to me, evangelist is, should be holy. But these TV hucksters, and, and, and they make their million dollars, but how much of that came from these widows on Social Security and came from uh, you know, these elderly ladies being victimized and being, um, having their guilt twisted and having their emotions uh, twisted? It's horrible. You bet it happens today. The richest bank on earth is the Vatican. Has been for centuries. It will be after the trumpet. It's going to be the uh, the primary means in which Antichrist will uh, fund his uh, global empire. Hmm. Amazing. Well, there's a lot more we could deal with on that. Um, I'm still not convinced the peoples there in Ezekiel 28:19 if uh if that has a relationship to the classifications the races the peoples of the angelic realm in other words cherubim seraphim uh rulers authorities principalities powers there's uh, lots of classifications of angelic beings and they could be thought of as races or uh nationalities or peoples uh, divisions of of the angelic order. We just don't know. Uh, before we get back to Mark, we've got Isaiah 14. We'll grab that as well. We can also grab Jeremiah 4 if we really wanted to give you the trifecta here this morning. But Isaiah 14 is, again, starts off with a message for a human being and then a transition to Satan. Isaiah fourteen twelve. And it's hard to tell. I, someday I'm going to break this down and settle in my own mind where exactly the shift takes place. The oppressor has ceased. Fury has ceased. I think these early verses, the taunt against the king of Babylon, are interesting. Um, your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. It says in verse 11, maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. I'm going to make a whole sermon series out of that one verse. The maggot bed with the worm blanket. Then verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. In the Latin Vulgate, this is where we get the name Lucifer. In Hebrew, it's Hillel ben Shachar, the proper name of our adversary before he falls and becomes Satan. 
You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. So again, do we know anything about the angelic economy? We know very little. We just know that they traded. They had a medium of exchange. They had wealth that was used to exchange for goods and services. And he accumulated an awful lot. And then through violence, he got even more. What do we know about angelic politics? Very little, but it's called you who have weakened the nations. They were organized into nations, however it was. They had boundaries. They had nations in the angelic world. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. See, even though he occupied the temple, he was not satisfied with that. Why? It was on the angelic earth. And he felt that that was inferior because God was in the third heaven. And there were other hosts in the heavens, in both the second heaven and the third heaven. I will ascend to heaven. He wanted the seat that didn't belong to him, but he he lusted for it. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He's not entitled to that chair. The book of Hebrews gives a rebuke to which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's not his chair. That chair is for Jesus. Satan's not entitled to that chair. And you can answer that question yourself. To which of the angels? To none of them and especially not to Halel ben Shachar. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you. This is perfectly in agreement with what we just saw in Ezekiel 28. It's a demonstration. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness? Remember the tohu wabohu? This is half of it. I think this is the tohu. Who overthrew its cities. There were cities, there were nations, there was an economy, global trade. And he brought it all crashing down in his rebellion. Who did not allow his prisoners to go home. We don't know what it was like. How many of the angels he executed, even how the angels died before we think. Now, because angels are immortal, we think they've always been immortal. Well, they are now because they're locked into their eternal estate as elect angels and fallen angels. But was that always the case? He did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the kings and the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. Anyway, it gets pretty gruesome. But there's a lot of doctrine in this. Uh, Lastly then, Jeremiah chapter 4. verse 23 again we have a shift we're going to start off talking in the human realm and then we shift to the angelic realm and uh, here's the weeping prophet seeing visions of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and God in a vision takes him back to the angelic earth and shows him an even greater destruction Verse 23, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was tohu wa bohu. 
the only place in the Bible we have it besides the Genesis 1-2. Tohu wabohu, formless and void, and the, into the heavens, and they had no light. Part of the wrath was the removal of light until he says, let there be light, and he starts to restore things. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven had fled. This, by the way, when you get into your more advanced angelology, this applies to both the winged heavenly realm spirit beings and the earthbound, um, terrestrial-bound spirit beings, the heavenly host and the earthly host. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were pulled down before the Lord, before His fierce anger. Anyway, there's uh, information there that relates to the original angelic rebellion and the destruction of things there. That's how the earth becomes, tohu wabohu, in uh, Genesis 1-2. All right, back to Mark 11. We'll tie this together then. Notice how he's teaching. He's not just some kind of a berserker. You know, he's not in a Norse rage. Um, He's actually, he's furious. Zeal is consuming him, but he's not carnal. We're told to be angry, yet do not sin. And here is the fierce wrath of God Almighty, and he's not carnal. And he still has his faculties. He's able to teach. Again, here, uh, Mark 11, 15, he's driving them out and he's overturning tables and he's not permitting anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, you see teaching in verse 17? He's taking them through Isaiah 56. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began to seek how to destroy him for they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished. At what? At his teaching. Not at the flipping tables over. Not at the show. Not at the entertainment. Not at the wow, look at him. He's pissed. Not at any of that. It's probably the first time they ever heard Isaiah 56. Wow. The Gentiles are supposed to come and not just let us plunder them, but they're supposed to come and pray and they're supposed to come and worship and this is supposed to be a spiritual house. And We never heard that before. What kind of teaching is this? Is that in our Bible? Hmm. So point three, Jesus engaged in a daily teaching and healing ministry Monday through Thursday of the Passion Week. And it enraged the the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It enraged them, the chief priests and the scribes. (laughs) That teaching's got to stop. It was bad enough when he was traipsing around Galilee and word was spreading. Now he's in the temple. Now there's people that actually know a little bit about Isaiah and some of the prophets and some of the scriptures. And he's too powerful of a teacher. Jesus engaged in a daily teaching and healing ministry Monday through Thursday of the Passion Week. And this is how he, it's so awesome. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 17, Mark 11, 18, Luke 19, 47 and 48. Because I'll be honest with you. If, if I knew that I'm dying this Friday, 
Would I be teaching Bible class here on a Wednesday morning? Okay? I'm just talking in my carnality and my humanity. If I know there's a traitor that's going to have me arrested Thursday night, if I know I'm going to be scourged on Friday, I'm going to be crucified, (laughs) and I've got omnipotent power at my disposal, (laughs) I know that Judas is my traitor, and I can put him on the moon, right? Goodbye, Judas. I'm going to turn you into a frog, and I'm going to put you on the moon, Well, he didn't. He knew who his traitor was. He knew the day he's been, he's, for this purpose, he came into the world. And so he spends his week teaching Bible class. I think that's awesome. Teaching Bible class. And it makes him furious, as we read there. Because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Astonished. That's in the Bible? I never heard that before. And all of these powerful teachings, uh, you know how uh, it's threatening to the Sadducees. Why have they been avoiding those parts of the Bible? <laughs> Why have they not been teaching that? See, that's how Arnold Fruchtenbaum got saved because someone showed him the, the, the verses in his own Bible. Isaiah 53 and some of these other places about the crucifixion of Christ. And he said, no, 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 you're, you're, you're tricking me. That's, that's in your Bible. No, that's in your Bible. Go look it up. Came back a week later. That's in my Bible. How come the rabbis never teach that? How come the, why is that never spoken of? You know, why don't they encourage Bible reading? Why do they tell me don't read the Bible? So we can't understand it anyway. Just trust us. The Roman church tells the Catholics the same thing. The rabbis tell the Jews the same thing. Cult leaders love just people, ignorant people can be manipulated. So don't bother reading it. You can't understand it anyway. You don't have the right priesthood. You don't have the right anointing. You don't have the right empowerment. Just do what we say. We'll get you to heaven. You'll be fine. It's horrible. And then you read it for yourself and you find out, hey, you know what? I don't need you. (laughs) I'm a believer priest. I'm saved by grace through faith. And uh, thanks to Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the reformers, we no longer needed the Roman priesthood. We never needed them anyway. All right. I'll grab the rest of these. Matthew 21. I think they're largely similar, but there could be some unique expressions here. 14 through 17 of Matthew 21. Here he's... uh, Overturning the uh, tables, the seats of those who were selling doves, kicking the seat out from under their seat. It is written, my house should be called a house of prayer. You're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. That was the song they sang on Palm Monday. And now they're bringing it to the temple on Tuesday and on Wednesday and Thursday. They became indignant and they said, do you hear what these children are saying? And he says, yes, time for another Bible class. Have you not never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? Let's uh, let's teach a Bible class from Psalm 8. He's going to spend his week teaching doctrine. 
Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. All right. Um, Luke 19, 47 and 48, the last of these. Luke 19. Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling, and saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Daily. That's why I get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday he had other things going on. Okay. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that he, they might do. For all the people were hanging onto every word he said. <laughs> Isn't that something? All right. Father, we thank you for your son. Thank you for your son, Father. And I wouldn't trade being a church age believer priest for anything in the world. I wouldn't trade the generation I'm, I'm in for anything in the world. But I think we're the trumpet generation, Father. I'm waiting to hear it. But if I could have one day with a time machine and go back, this is what I'd want to see. I would want to be in the temple to hear him teach. I would want to be at Golgotha on Friday. Father, I thank you for your son and his faithfulness. Did what we could not do. Did what we would not do. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.